So there are many new faces here that weren't here when we began Hebrews in September of 2022. And so today, I just felt led to preach um, a message that explains something that is absolutely crucial about fellowship. Extremely crucial. And, and you should get this from every sermon that you hear, but uh, this is very crucial. And I wanted to explain it, and that is that it is our grading rubric, if you want to put it that way, uh, that our endless pursuit is to be a biblical church. When I say, I mean, biblical, it would be italicized and bolded and in massive letters. We want to be not just a church, not just, we don't just have, you know, something in common, religiously speaking. More important than anything, more than important than any of our preferences and any of our flavors is that we are a church that's, that's about this right here. We're a biblical church over all things. We're not trying to innovate and attract with modern flair and engagement. Our leadership truly believes that we should be an excitedly faithful biblical church, and that is enough. I mean, God said in Romans chapter 1 that the gospel is the power of God to save. He didn't say, you know, keeping things trendy or being funny from the pulpit. He said the gospel is the power of God to save, and certainly we can add to that to sustain those of us who are saved. In other words, this is a good day to be a guest here because you're getting a, a primer of, of who we are and specifically in this ministry of teaching God's Word. You don't need me to be an entertainer or a comedian or a showman. I'm more of a clown than a comedian, if anything. What stands out as I teach God's Word shouldn't be bolsterousness or personality or fashion sense. I don't think you have to worry about the last one. You need a shepherd who shepherds by God's Word. You need the Bible, man. You need God's word. Not me standing on a soapbox, on the, the soapbox that I want to stand on when I wake up on a Sunday morning, but instead by God's living, breathing, active, and profitable word. Now, there are a lot of different styles of preaching, and maybe you've gone to several churches, or maybe you've had several pastors over the years, and you've seen different, or maybe just listened online. There are different styles of preaching. You may find something that's some, a guy that is more topical, or maybe uh, looks at themes in the Bible, more thematic. You will most of the time hear me preach verse by verse. The word for that is expositional, expository preaching. It means to take a passage or most likely more than that is a book of the Bible and look at the entirety of that book of the Bible. And the reason why is because it is my personally preferred style. I don't think you just need to be told what the passage says. I think you need to be told what it says, but also how I found that it says that, why it needed to be said to that audience then, and why it still speaks to you and to me today. In other words, why it matters to your life. You know, I, I could just say, it says this. Now let's talk about the implications of that. But I, I don't want you to just take my word for it. I want you to see how this conclusion can be arrived at and why this was the conclusion of the author. I found that the best way to do that is by going through a book. And by the way, when we do that, and this happened in Hebrews, and it happened in John, and it's going to happen in Acts, is that we find ourselves not being able to avoid hard things to talk about. You come to subjects in a book that maybe a pastor wants to avoid. Uh, unfortunately, I don't get an opportunity to do that because I'm not going to pull any punches uh, whenever we come to God's Word. Simply put, I be firmly believe that on Sundays and Wednesdays, you need what God says infinitely more than what Caleb or any other man would say. We need God's words. And this is why we're going to see this from Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, that there is nothing more soothing and liberating and fulfilling for your soul than the God-fearing, biblically obedient life. Nothing is better for you 
than the God-fearing and biblically obedient life, which is what we're going to see from Solomon. And Solomon says this in a lot of ways in Ecclesiastes, and we're literally only looking at the last six verses of this book. But seeking to find fulfillment in this life, and I'll just paraphrase some of his examples. Seeking to find fulfillment in this life is like pouring water in a cup with a hole in the bottom of it, right? You may even get it up to the brim if you pour fast enough and you really get it in there, but if it's got a hole in the bottom of it, it will never last, right? It will never permanently be fulfilling. It will never permanently be satisfying. That's why you go on the most amazing vacation, right? Like, oh, it was Cancun, and it was all-inclusive, and it was wonderful. And you get back, and you're like, I'm ready for another vacation. Because nothing is ever enough. You get this big, you remember back in the, or the turn of the millennium, and you had this massive TV screen, but it was like this enormous, it was as big this way as it was this way. You know what I'm talking about? And then you have that TV for five years or, or less, and you say, but I want to a little flat screen. But babe, this one's not, you know, it's, the, the screen is, but we need this other one, right? Because it's never enough. You get the iPhone 5, and you're like, oh, this is the best it's ever been. And now we're at like 12 Max Pro Elite Standard Version or something like that. I don't know. I think that's what, the, that's what ESV stands for in the Bible. It's the Elite Standard Version, right? No, I'm kidding. My point is that Solomon knows this, and I love that he says these things. He ends his book by saying, the whole duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments. The whole duty. You want to know what you should focus your life on? Fear God. Keep his commandments. Because nothing else will satisfy. It won't last. God's word is the God-given means to our God-purposed end. And so I want you to be reminded of something as we open this morning and forevermore, that when we open this book, it is as if God is opening his mouth. When we open this book, it is as if God is opening his mouth. This is not something to be taken lightly. And there is nothing more important than we could talk about on a Sunday morning than that right there. Let's do it. Ecclesiastes 12, 9 through 14. The author writes this. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote, wrote the words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil." When you read the preacher there, that's Solomon's way of referring to himself. I believe Solomon's the author here. The book of Ecclesiastes is like reading Solomon's journal. If you don't know who Solomon was, he's the, he was a king of Israel whenever there was one kingdom, not two, but one kingdom. And he was the son of King David. And he was, in certain ways, a great king. And in certain ways, uh, he had a devastating kingship. So uh, I'm not going to get into the ticky-tack of that. But suffice it to say, he was a special guy that God really had his hand on this guy, Solomon. I love Ecclesiastes because Solomon is a guy who'd seen the highest of highs, but he'd also seen the lowest of lows, and he lived to tell about it. This is his telling about it. He used, to put it in our terms, you guys remember the scientific method? Maybe reaching back for some of you guys into like grade school. Are you okay? I know that hurt. 
Um, you guys remember the scientific method? It kind of starts with um, an observation, and then a hypothesis is formed, and I'm kind of summarizing, and then you test that hypothesis, and then you find your results, and then if it's not what you wanted, and you haven't found your result that's satisfactory, you make another observation, and it just starts over, and then a new hypothesis, and then you test it, and you see it just kind of goes around until you find. Solomon used the scientific method before it was called that. He used the scientific method on the world. He would make an observation and say, that thing is really great. And so his hypothesis was, that thing is so great that if I just have it, I'll be good. Like, I'll feel fulfilled. And so he went and he got that thing. But then his hypothesis proved to be false. Because after he had that thing, he said, this isn't good enough. And though he discard it and say, let me, that, now that, I think that's it. I'll, I'll go over there and I'll, I'll get that thing to the fullest extent and you know the rest of the thing. The thing is, it wasn't bad for Solomon to have things. Things are not evil unless they are used to find fulfillment and meaning, unless you love them more than you love the Lord your God. And Solomon began to love them. He loved things. And I'm not going to go all the way here, but in chapter 2, we see a good picture of this. In verse 4, and again, we're not going to read it, but I'll, I'm just summarizing. In verse 4 of chapter 2, he builds his own palace. He is, it was 13 years in the making. It was surrounded by vineyards. I mean, what could be better than a great house, right? In the next verses, verse 5 and 6, Solomon literally tried to create his own Garden of Eden. He even uses language that is reflective of Genesis, talking about the Garden of Eden. And it all left him wanting. Wouldn't that be enough? No. Verse 7 then says that he filled his house full of servants, more livestock than anyone in their entire nation's history. Surely that'd be enough. Of course it wasn't. Then in verse 8, the very next verse, he talks about how many insane amounts of silver and gold he had. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines, meaning he tried to find it in and all. In the opposite sex, insects, he tried everything and it wasn't enough. And then he said, maybe if I'm just good enough. And so he tried to really go into morality and being good and having good morals and it wasn't enough. And then he said, what about justice? If I just focus on justice and creating a, a good society, that wasn't enough. He focused on politics and found that none of it mattered. It was all, to use his word, vanity. It was meaningless. And so at the end, he just says, what's the point of all this? We all just die. He's a real upbeat guy, right? That's what he said. He's just like, we all die. Whether you're rich or poor, you still die. Whether you're a good guy or a bad guy, you still die. And I know that's an oversimplification, but that's Solomon's results. He just came away and said, there's got to be more. Chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, and I, I will read this. It'll be on the screen. He said, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. I worked for it and I got it. And this is my reward for all my toil, he's saying. Verse 11 then says, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had experienced in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. You ever tried to strive after wind? That's what he's saying. It's grabbing something that can't be grabbed. He says, I denied myself nothing. I enjoyed myself, but my reward was only temporary. It was unfulfilling. And there's a big thing here that maybe you can identify with in your own testimony. And that is that it is God's grace that Solomon found it all to be unfulfilling. Isn't it? I mean, think about that. Isn't it God's grace that he found it all to be so unfulfilling because it led him to true fulfillment? And that is that fulfillment is not found in the gift of life, but in the giver of life. And this is what Solomon arrived at. 
And honestly, y'all, this book may be worth coming back to one day and taking verse by verse. But today I want to make and just quickly extract from it three principles in its brief conclusion verses that we're going to look at this morning. And so we're going to see three ways that God's word is the daily means through which we pursue our eternal end. You'll see that on the screen. Daily means to an eternal end. The first way is this. God's word is to be embraced. God's word is to be embraced. You know what that word means, embraced, right? To hold it tight and hard. God's word is to be embraced. Solomon says that these words were not written carelessly. He wants you to hold on to them tight because they weren't written just flippantly and carelessly. He put a lot of thought into it. Verses 9 and 10 say this. He said, besides being wise, the preacher, Solomon's a third person kind of guy, it seems. We all love those, right? Just kidding. Besides being wise, he says, the preacher also taught the people knowledge weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. So he really tried to put it all together in the right way. Verse 10, the preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote the words of truth. He's talking about this book, plus he's talking about many of the proverbs that he's written as well, right? He's written these things in a certain way, and he's speaking of himself in the third person to say that he's really cared about the things that he's written down. He's done it carefully. And you know, man, I I wish that we could know the time that Solomon put into the message that he's written for them, the original audience, and for us, but there's no way that we can know that. I really feel his pain here. (laughs) As someone who writes, you know, uh, write a sermon too every week, and I feel his pain here because he's had a million thoughts in his head, it seems. He's had time to organize them, as it says, trim them, add, subtract, study, and weigh them. At the heart of his words is an attention to detail, and that's what he's communicating here. He wanted to write well, but he also wanted to be understood well, for the benefit of the ones that come after him. What he's saying is what you may say to your children or grandchildren, learn from my experience. Don't make the same mistakes that I did. That's Solomon's heart. I mean, isn't he so relatable? Much can be observed that we can comment on here, but for where we're going today, I want to point out two simple, these are, consider these like sub-principles under that first main thing. Two little principles, one for the teacher, the preacher, and one for the church, uh, us, all together, right? The first thing under that subpoint is that the church should be well-fed. The church should be well-fed, and this is what his care is. He's like, I'm trying to present these thoughts in such a way that you are fed, that you learn from them, you learn from my experience, and I've carefully crafted these things for your sake. The church should be well-fed. And by the way, I, I should have put this on the screen. Uh, the church should be well-fed in order to be well-led. In order to be well-led, the church must be well-fed. Obviously, I'm, I'm your pastor, the shepherd, and so you need me to teach you and, and, and feed you God's Word. Be well-fed so that you may be well-led by your leadership. He uses words like delight and truth and arranging things with care. What that means is, and I'll just apply it to our situation, you need more from your pastor than for me to stand up here rambling about spiritual things. Have you been in a situation where a pastor gets up there and just starts rambling about stuff that God's laid on his heart, you kind of leave thinking, I mean, that was fine, but I don't know if I've really been fed today. I'm not ganging up on anybody. I'm just being transparent here. I've I've been in your seat more than I've been where I'm standing. I haven't been doing this for, for that long. And I remember being in your seat and thinking, there's a difference between being fed on a Sunday morning and a guy that seems like he's just phoning it in and getting up there and talking about God for a few minutes. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you really? There's a difference between these things. You need more from me than for me to just stand up here and ramble. 
I stand behind this pulpit ready to do what verse 10 says, to bring words of delight and truth and preparedness. And each of those three words is very important. Words of delight. God's word should be our delight, not our hardship. You guys ever feel defeated on a Sunday morning? You shouldn't, because God's word should be our delight, not our hardship. It's good news after all, isn't it? I mean, it's good news. It shouldn't be destructive to us, but it should be uplifting to us, not heaping shame and guilt on you. But at the same time, he says words of delight. But he also says, I've thought out words of truth. And sometimes truth can be hard, right? God's word is not a, a, a word of hardship, but it's also a word of truth. In other words, Paul, or, or Solomon is saying, I didn't water it down. Like I told you hard things. I'm not watering these things down. Guys, the gospel, isn't the gospel offensive? The gospel must be offensive. You know, we, we can't preach grace without preaching the fact that it's undeserved. Amen? Isn't that what grace means? It's unmerited, undeserved favor? You can sit here, I can sit here and preach God's grace, but it, if it's grace, I must preach sin, right? And so he says, yeah, I've written on words of delight. Man, they should delight your soul. But it's also the words of truth. And sometimes truth hurts, as we like to say. I like to follow that with saying that you can't preach grace without preaching that it's undeserved. But also, Paul says in Ephesians 4.13 or 4.15, that you are to speak the truth. You know the next part? In love. Speak the truth in love. That doesn't mean that I just go around saying, you're all going you know where. That's not loving. There's a way to communicate that. And Solomon just takes great care to say there are consequences for finding fulfillment in this world. And they're devastating. That's the truth. But the delight is that God is a God of mercy. We could really hang out there. But he also talks about arranging these things with care. He talks about preparedness. Solomon knew the value of knowing, right? He talks about knowledge a lot in the Proverbs. Knowing God's word. And he also knew the wisdom, though, of putting it into practice. I mean, think about Israel's history. God's people would quickly, right after Solomon, the kingdoms would split. God's people would quickly fracture when their Bibles became an afterthought, and it wasn't discovered until generations later by King Josiah. It was a, something that was forgotten. Godliness, God's word, it was forgotten. And you know what happened? The kingdom fractured. His people cracks, brokenness, devastation, and then eventually exile. And there's a principle there that we can extract, that we live in an age where in many situations, the church is fracturing. Is it not? Again, we're, we're not going to act like this isn't real. The church is fracturing in many ways and in many situations. And when that's happening, I'm just going to give you an instruction. Look to the pulpit. Look to the pulpit. You look to what's being fed. You look to what's being taught. The reason the fractures happen is because this becomes an afterthought. And it begins to fracture and break. I mean, think about it. What is the church being fed? Think about your own diet. What are you being fed? If your meals in a given week consist of Oreos, Little Debbie's, candy, and deep fried everything, now some of you guys really are feeling called out. If that's your diet every day, then don't be surprised if you, I mean, seriously, don't be surprised if you have health conditions and health issues and you suffer from diabetes and then have a stroke or have heart failure. You see what I'm saying? Why does that happen? Because of malnourished diet, of a terrible diet. Feeding the church junk food from the pulpit will result in aches and pains and malnutrition and fracture. It happened there, and it will happen here if this is not absolutely primary. I mean, think about the antithesis, the aches of antithesis of the things I just mentioned. God's word is our delight, not our hardship. 
Instead of preaching that, what if I just got up here and just heaped on you shame and guilt and just made you feel devastated every time you walk out of this room? That's a fracture. That's a brokenness. On the other side of the spectrum, it is the word of truth. What if I got up here and just told you what you wanted to hear? This is the one that's really happening right now, right? In this society. Hey, you're fine just like you are. Love is love. Live and let live. Isn't that an unoffensive, absolute sham of a gospel? It's not the truth. And it will lead to fractures. And it is leading to fractures all around us. Compromise, compromise, compromise. And fractures. Preparedness, arranged with care. We could go on and on, man. The antithesis of those things leads to fractures. And so, I'll just come back to the thing I said a moment ago. The church should be well-fed if it is going to be well-led. That's for the teacher. I'm telling you guys that as if it's not for me. <laughs> I'm trying at this. But the second sub-point under that first thing is that the church should also come hungry. And that's for you. The church should come hungry. The church has to come hungry. Yeah, the teacher has to preach a word of delight and a word of truth and a word of preparedness, but also the church must come hungry. You could have a personal chef serving you the finest of meals and the perfect diet, but if you don't eat, your body's going to suffer. I mean, you could, have, you could have Billy Graham up here, but if you come in here and doze off and fall asleep and don't engage and just put up a wall in front of your face, it doesn't matter if you have the greatest preacher in the world standing in front of you, Jesus himself, and it would do no good if you were not here to eat. You must be well fed, but you also got to come to the table and pick up the fork and scoop it into your mouth. When you come to the gathering of the church, come to feast on the bread of life, not just to get your church fix but to be fed and to feast and to grow. You know, I like to say that preaching is a three-way communication. I'm communicating with you. That's the most obvious one, right? I'm saying things. That's communication. But believe it or not, you're communicating with me. Some of you guys are really bad at it. Some of you guys are really good at it. No, I'm just kidding. Actually, I'm not kidding. That's honestly the truth. I'll be honest with you. Um, but it's two-way communication. You are, you are participating whether you realize it or not. And it's two-way communication, there are things that I'm saying, but you are saying things to me without saying anything. But it's also three-way communication because I'm speaking to you and you are verb verblessly speaking to me, but we are speaking to God. We are communicating with God. And when we don't come to eat and come to, to, to grow in godliness, we're coming to the table and walking away having not eaten. Some of you guys with kids know how frustrating that is. When you slave over a meal and you're like, here you go, kiddos. And they're like, eh, I don't want this. You're like, uh, you better like this. Right? You know how frustrating it is as a parent to prepare a meal for your kids to turn their nose up at it and say, I don't want it. And yet when we come into this place, not ready to eat, we're turning up our nose at the meal that God has prepared for us, and there will only be fractures as a result of that. Three-way communication. To embrace his word. It's the daily means through which we pursue our eternal end. The second main thing that I want us to take from our passage this morning is that God's word is not just to be embraced. God's word is to be obeyed. God's word is to be obeyed. And maybe you could blur the lines between these first two things. You could. But I think there's a difference here, and I want to just kind of hang out here for just a second. God's word is not just to be embraced. It's also to be obeyed. In other words, these words should lead to change. Our hearts should be changed by God's word. It shouldn't just be things that we mentally comprehend and understand. They should travel that long distance from our head down to our hearts and lead to a changed life. One of the things I've always thought would be a cool thing, and just, just thinking of, of really surrendering 
to the Word of God. One of the things I've always thought, and when you're in seminary, you have a million cool ideas that you never actually do because you're a big weirdo. Um, one of the things I always thought would be a cool thing to start doing in the Sunday gathering is to have a, a different person each week, a lot of times like a student. Uh, some of you, I'm not going to do this, okay? So just chill out. Um, but have like a young person uh, or somebody different every week take the Bible that the pastor is going to preach from, and you would have it, and you'd have like a ribbon to where the passage is going to be, and then i give it to you before the service, and then I'm not going to do this, okay? So just stop looking at me that way. Um, but give it to that person, and then whenever uh, Lauren is up here playing and children are being dismissed, that person comes and opens it and puts it down and, and opens God's word uh, right here. And then the pastor would then come to the place of the pulpit uh, to, to then preach. And you're thinking, what are you talking about? Here's the why I think that that'd kind of be cool um, is because it communicates that I'm not just bringing the word, that we're collectively coming underneath the word. All right, so it's like it's, it goes first and then we come to dine, right? Uh, the reason we don't do that is because I'd have to explain that like that every single week with like people that aren't here and they're like, these guys are so that's why we don't do it. But I just want you to know, it's up here, and these are the wasted things that I think about. Anyway, we are called to submit unto the Word of God, right? I, I don't stand on it. We kneel beneath it, right? I don't stand on this to say what I want to say. We all come beneath the flames and say, let us be warm, right? We see this in, in Solomon's words. Verse 11, he says, the words of the wise are like goads. We'll explain that in a moment. Like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. I'll let you guess who that shepherd is. You see the capital S there. He's talking about God, right? A goad, you may be wondering what that is. A goad is a long uh, pointy stick that would be used for poking and guiding oxen while they were plowing. It sort of poked them, and maybe that was a little uncomfortable, but it helped them to see that there's a task at hand, and you need to submit to this. And so you take a goad, and you'd point it into the, or poke the, the oxen so they would continue to stay on course. Uh, maybe a more relevant example would be some of you guys really snore at night, and your wife goads, she's just like, mm, so that you'll respond and stop doing that, right? Or maybe it's the other way around, and you're the one, I, you know, who knows, maybe, I don't know, I'm not in your business like that. Uh, but the whole purpose for the goads or for the nudging during the middle of the night when the storing is overwhelming is so that that person would respond and they would quit it, right? So they would stop it. And so Solomon is exhorting his readers that the scriptures are intended not just to be heard, but they're intended to poke. They're intended to prod. They're intended to make one uncomfortable and respond, to stop, or to keep going, or to do, or whatever it may be, to obey. It's, this is God's loving poke. That's why it says one shepherd is the one that gave it to you. God's poking and prodding and moving and mobilizing. He's molding us and guiding us into the image of Christ. A New Testament author just sort of re-ups on this. James chapter 1, 22 through 24, which you may know these verses. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, right? Deceiving yourselves. For if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he, he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. You just saw the information, you came in here, and then didn't do anything about it. This is Solomon's exact point, is that time in the Word, time under the Word, should lead to a changed life. Bible study, preaching ministry, whatever it may be, if it has to do with this, it is an enterprise of ongoing, everyday submission to the authority of our Father. He goes on, says, my son, 
beware. There's a warning, right? Beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. Now, he's not so much warning about like other doctrines and things, although that is certainly an application that could be made. <clears throat> what he's saying is, beware the idol of information. Like, beware the idol of making so much of just learning and intaking and taking in everything that it actually just becomes the worship of information and not of a changed heart of learning and thinking that because you're learning so much, you must be changing when in reality all you are doing is learning. I mean, books are fine, but you can read and read and read and gain tons of knowledge, but his point is that knowledge without wisdom is pointless. The knowledge without wisdom, at the end of the day, is pointless. In other words, you can be very smart and yet very stupid. You can be very smart and yet very stupid. God's design is for you to be more than a smart sinner, but rather a godly, Bible-saturated, daily-submitting follower of Jesus. And we can be really smart and yet be very unwise. He's saying just beware that God's word is to be obeyed, embraced, but also obeyed. The last thing, number three, is that God's word is the preview of our purpose. God's word is the preview of our purpose, meaning our eternal purpose. And this is my favorite part of this passage that we're going to see Next, these words have a purpose, to worship God through the word of God, to worship him through these things. This is a guy that has poured it all out. He's at his wit's end. He's written this book that is such an honest reflection of his own sin and hardship and idolatry. And he ends with this. And so I just want, to, I want you to think about the gravitas of, of him ending, ending with these words. 13 and 14 says, The end of the matter, all has been heard, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. What he's saying is, when it's all said and done, this is the end game. Honor God, fear God, and obey him. I've got a slide that I think um, will help make that make sense. And I'm just going to do sort of like a parallel comparison of what it means to fear God. It's positional awareness. Go ahead and throw that up there if you will. When I think of fearing God and, and proper placement, positional awareness, there's both a situation where we need to honor and recognize who God is. It's fearing God, recognizing who he is, his position, and, and what it looks like that who God is. But also, as a result of who God is, who are we called to be? That's what really the fear of the Lord is. It's an, an understanding of who he is, and as a result of that, who we are called to be in response to that. And so putting God in his proper place comes before we can understand our proper place in uh, relation to him. Does that make sense? This is what I mean by that. Number one, God is holy and glorious. God is holy and glorious. He's holy and glorious, meaning holy means he's set apart. He's different than us. We sin, he doesn't. We're imperfect, he's not. He's perfect. We're limited, he's unlimited. We're finite, he's infinite. I mean, he is different than us. He is holy in so many ways, but also that he is glorious, meaning he is worthy to be praised to the uttermost. Man, he's holy. And man, is he glorious. But secondly, he endlessly loves us. God endlessly loves us. His love is never failing. Number three is that he guides me faithfully. Even when we give God reasons to totally bail on us, he is so faithful, isn't he? And that's one of my favorite things to sing about in church is the faithfulness of God. Great is thy faithfulness. Your faithfulness is never ceasing. He guides us faithfully even when we wander, wandering sheep, right? And number four, he accepts me through Christ alone. Number four is that he accepts me through Christ alone. All right, 
fearing God, right? So what does it mean then, our position in response to his position? How do we apply those things? Well, putting ourselves in our proper place looks like this, and just see them parallel. He is holy and glorious. Then what we should see is that we are made for his glory. We're made for his glory. I'm made for God's glory. We like to tell ourselves that our chief pursuit is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that we are made for the glory of God. We're made for his namesake. So many times God is working so that you may know that he is the Lord. I mean, go read the Old Testament. You will see how many times God wants you to understand that you live for his glory. He is our chief pursuit. He endlessly loves us. So that's the easy one. If you can't put this one together, that's pretty easy. I'm endlessly loved by God. If he loves us endlessly, then you are endlessly loved by God. And that may sound redundant to you, but I need you to consider what those two things mean. Yeah, God is a God of endless, of endless love, but that's, just not a, that's not just a generic character trait of his. It has strong implications for your life. Here endlessly, because you're going to go out of this room this week, and you're going to sin, and you're going to fall short of the glory of God. And when you do that, you're going to think, who could love me? The sinner, the wayward. How can I be loved by God? And hear me when I say, to fear God means to understand that you have no business being loved by God, and yet he has told us that his love never fails you. That's powerful. The third thing is that he guides faithfully. Well, if he guides faithfully, then what should we do? Follow faithfully. And again, we're going to fail at that. But a faithful follower is one that when they fall off the path, they get back on the path and understand, yeah, I'm wayward, but I also know that he's my guide. He has the best intention for my heart. He is my shepherd, and so I want to get back on the path. His guidance, listen, God's guidance is pointless if you do not follow. God's guidance is pointless. His faithful guidance is pointless if you are not willing to follow that guidance. And then lastly, he accepts me through Christ alone. Simply put, I am accepted through Christ alone. Don't miss accepted, not rejected, not scorned, not shamed, but accepted. And please don't miss that it is only through the work of Jesus. And as a result of that, I'll put down there at the very bottom, therefore we obey. Therefore, we obey. Understand that that inference, that therefore, is in response. He doesn't say keep his commandments and remember to fear God too from time to time. He says fear God, positional awareness, and as a result of fearing God, keep his commandments. Obey, live a life of obedience. You aren't accepted based on your obedience. You are obedient because you are accepted. Isn't that your relationship with your children or your relationship with your parents? You have sinned greatly against them, but they're your parents. And I sure hope that they love you despite your failures. And you were called to be obedient as a child. Children, you were called to be obedient as a, as a child. But their love for you is not, hopefully not contingent on that. God sure isn't. His love isn't contingent on your ability to obey, but your, obey, your, your willingness to be obedient is in response to his willingness to accept you and to his own family. Brothers and sisters implies that we certainly have a heavenly father. I found a quote from a guy named St. Augustine. He's an early church father. The quote is this, and I think this is a great reminder for us. Go ahead and throw that up there. That he made us for himself, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. This is Solomon, y'all. God made us for himself, and therefore our hearts will be restless until we find rest in him. That's why you can have millions upon millions upon millions, and it just never be enough. 
John D. Rockefeller was one of the most rich men in the whole world one time. Guy came up to him and asked him, what was your favorite million that you made? You know what he said? My next million. Because it was never enough. You spirit, your spirit will never find rest until you realize you were made to rest in him, to fear him, to obey him. That's not enslaving. It is liberating. Solomon closes in a, in a really dark tone. In verse 14, he says, God will bring every deed into judgment. Not good for you and me, y'all. He'll bring every deed into judgment. That means the bad ones. With every secret thing, whether good or evil, all will be judged, he says. Every deed, that means every action that you and I have ever done. Every secret thing, that means any thought that you and I have ever had. Good or evil, it means nothing will be hidden from the holy and just God of the universe. I think it's important to close with that because we will all one day be exposed as unworthy to spend eternity with God, but God being rich in mercy. When we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive in the name of his son, Jesus. See, the good news of the gospel can't be preached. Grace can't be preached without preaching a devastating reality of sin. Everyone in this room sins and falls short of the glory of God, and none of us will gain favor with God acceptance from him on grounds of our own merit. Enter Jesus, the sacrificial lamb who brings the eternal incense. His death is eternally satisfying to a holy God. You see, I said this Wednesday, and I've said this before on a Sunday morning, is that God treated Jesus on the cross as if he had lived your life so that he could treat you as if you'd lived his he treated Jesus on the cross as if, you, as if he had lived your life so that through faith in Christ, he could treat you as if you'd lived his. Perfect, sinless, spotless. And someone here today needs to respond to that good news. That for some of you today, fearing God means first understanding that you are separated from him. And to keep his commandments comes next. But first, you need to fall on your face and say, God, save me, because I've been trying to do it under my own merit, and I can't be accepted on that merit. You need to first learn what it means to surrender. You know, one of the favorite prodigals, um, or not prodigals, but parables, is the prodigal son. And many of you know this story, but the guy is an immature, you know, young man. He's got a brother who seems to have it together. And, but he, this guy's an immature young man, and he says, Dad, I want the inheritance. I want it now. Give it to me. And he's like, son, that's not wise. And he says, I don't care. I want what's mine, what's coming to me. He takes it, and he gets out of there. And he goes, and he blows it. In our ways of thinking, it'd be like going to Vegas and blowing it in a weekend. The whole inheritance is gone. What happens next? He's got nowhere to go. He's eating with pigs. Slop. And so in his shame and his devastation, he wanders back to the father, feeling like he's never, I'm going to hear it, right? I'm going to hear it. And it's the lowest of low. He's thinking he's going to yell and he's going to scream. He's never going to let me hear the end of it. And this is going to be utter despair that I'm returning home to, the prodigal son, right? You know, the misconception, and you know what happens next. He goes home, and that's not what he experiences at all. He experiences celebration, embrace 
from his father. What a great parable for us. Amen? But here's the misconception about the prodigal son. The misconception is that we look at him and think, well, he went and partied too much. Should have left his party in days behind. If not for his party in days, then he'd still be okay. But the story not only begins with partying, it ends with partying. You hear that, right? It begins with his wayward partying, but he returns home to a celebration and a party. And the father's saying, go and, and kill the fattened calf. We are celebrating for today. My son has returned home to me, the prodigal. It wasn't that he partied too much. It's simply that the party honors God when it is due to being satisfied in his love. You will never find rest until you find that you're created to rest solely in him. And today, my prayer for you is that you would surrender that. And maybe you're the prodigal, and it's time to surrender and say, I will rest in no other and find fulfillment in no other. I want the party to be found in Jesus.